0: started here we're going to be in first kings chapter 18 first kings chapter 18 if you have a bible open up to first kings chapter 18 if you don't they'll walk down the aisles with the bibles and you just raise your hand they'll give you one. one. kings chapter 18 i was at uh is it paul martin's restaurant I was at Paul Martin's restaurant with with a friend of mine last night, uh, sitting at the the bar. Both of us having iced tea, and uh, I mean, if I was having a beer, would you know what I'm saying? I, we were having iced tea, and 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 people were. Uh, two ladies came up there, precious, real sweet, excited about the fellowship, all, all that was going on here. Um, but I was so intrigued to sit with this friend of mine. He is uh, an attorney who, really, at this season in his life, has earned the right to have a drink with an umbrella on it on a beach beach somewhere just calling it quits but he is in the thick of the fight uh contending and defending um religious liberty across the country and he came in and i i love this man tom garing is here and i am not going to continue without acknowledging him tom where are you stand up right now i'm not asking you i'm telling you stand up stand up He hates it when I do this, but I don't do it anyway. He's never lost a case. Wow. And some of, you are going, some, some of you are going, oh, you've jinxed it. Okay, then why are you serving that weird, you know, unchristian system of religion? We're jinxed? What is that? Like a curse? What you, what you, witchcraft? Come on. You know why Ian lost a case? Because he prepares. And he's diligent. And he studies to show himself approved. And he doesn't take, you know, what he, he, he works as though it's, it, it, it's dependent on him and praises as, as though it's dependent on God. And what he does, he does unto the Lord. And God's given him favor. And, and really, at this season of his life, he really doesn't need to be doing what he's doing, but he, he's called to do it. And this has been probably the hardest season of his life because he's working with Sean Foyt. And the guy's, <laughs> he's got cases all over the country and he's defending him. So uh, grateful for you, Tom. Attorneys nowadays like to weaponize the law against the citizenry, but Tom understands the laws, the wise restraints that make men free, and he contends for the, for the common man, and I'm grateful for this brother. He's precious. We need more like Tom, a lot more. Folks who are willing to put it all on the line, and that's Tom. Um, and I share that because as we're getting ready to take a look at First Kings 18, Tom asked me last night as we were sitting, he goes, how do you prepare, prepare for a sermon? I say, I, you know, i uh, when I was a, a college student, I procrastination, I was actually, I wasn't a college student, I was an athlete uh, who went to school. And um, I majored in basically eligibility, you know, it's like, <laughs> the night of the final, my roommate would, he, 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 John Overstreet, he would tell you to this day, we, were, we both came to Christ, but John would, would share that, you know, the, the, the day before the final or the night before the final, uh, he would be in bed getting ready to take his test and I'd come in at some ungodly hour and he'd see the light because we had a loft that we built and he'd see the light go on in the, in the dorm room and he'd hear a book open up that had never been opened up before and that smell of a new book would rise to his, you know. And he'd just see me reading until the sun would come up and then I'd run to the class and take the class and, you know, get a good grade. And he just didn't understand how I did that and I don't either. Um, and, I, and I thought the Lord wired me that way but in the same regard, he also speaks to me, and the more that I read during the week, the more he puts something together. And, and it's, it's the tension of waiting. And it wasn't until I heard Newt Gingrich share how Ronald Reagan would put together a speech, because they called him the great communicator. And I was with Newt, with four other people in the room. I said, uh, Mr. Speaker, um, how did Ronald Reagan, you know, you comment on, on his speaking but you're an amazing speaker, how did you learn to be that way, extemporaneous? And he said, I learned it from Ronald Reagan, I saw him in an airport going over some three by five cards. And a lot of people don't know this, but he had Coke bottle thick glasses. And he would go through these cards, and I, I went up and he had just finished the, uh, the Republican National Convention's A Time for Choosing, it was a very famous speech. And he wasn't president yet, and he was traveling with General Electric, I think, and, and Newt was a freshman congressman. And he said, how do you prepare for these? And Newt said that uh, Ronald Reagan, he said, well, I have catalogs, because back then they didn't have computers, and when I see pithy quotes or things I like, I put them and I organize them in categories. And then when I'm asked to speak at uh, an event, whatever the topic of that event is, I take a couple of cards that are pertinent to that and I put them all in a file, and while I'm traveling either by train or by plane, I'm reading them and everywhere I, I, I I memorize them. And then ones that stand out to me and start to speak to me, I keep those and put others aside. And then as I get to the speech, there's people that are talking and as the night is building and I'm kind of reading the room, I'll take some out. And, and then he says, before I step up on the podium, I take the cards and I turn them upside down and I mix them all up. <laughs> and then I step up and I turn them over And the tension of not knowing what's there keeps the audience, you know, at attention too. And I I thought, I'm Ronald Reagan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, but I'm doing anything I could to justify. But I will say that this message, as I go through the anchored reading, I do that. And as I'm reading the anchored series, as all of you are doing the two-year reading through the Bible, I I loved when I got to 1 Kings 18 because this passage spoke to me. I knew God had a message for all of you. And then last night, as we were kind of calling it quits and we were fading, and I actually fell asleep through a small portion of it, awoke and finished it. I was watching the life of Bonhoeffer, and I was with Eric Metaxas this week, who wrote a book on Bonhoeffer. And we were in Newport Beach with Charlie Kirk, and had a chance to talk to him about Bonhoeffer. And my my heart started to stir in regards to this man. And then when I got to this passage, I was deeply touched. I had heard a friend, Lawrence White, do a message, Dr. Lawrence White, do this message a number of times uh, on this passage, um, talking about Kronos um, and Kairos, the different moments in time. But I I was going through this, and and God gave me a different picture, and I I pray it ministers to you today, because uh, I'm troubled by the state of our nation, as many of you are. But more importantly, I'm troubled by the position of Christians in America today. I, I my heart was broken by a um, yeah somebody who I deeply love and admire and has helped formulate so many of the things that I have stood by and articulated with their scholastic help and and when I found out that they had capitulated to this tyranny and and they knew the shot was wrong but for the sake of appeasement or whatever it was, they took it. And I, I Michelle was there and I, I probably wasn't real kind. I tried to be a little more gracious, but I, I got upset. I just said, you're the last person I would have ever thought would have done this. I, I'm, I'm shocked. I said, there, we've got nurses who are, who are braver than the shepherds in this country. We've got pilots who are braver. We've got firemen and and police officers. We've got teachers who are braver than the shepherds. If you're scared, you're supposed to be the shepherd. You you tend to the sheep, you care for them, you you calm them, you protect them, but you capitulated to tyranny. For what? And then the, the excuse which was supposedly an explanation And I I just realized at that moment, let it go. Let it go. Thomas Paine said, if you don't want to join us, understood, your names will be forgotten in history. Those that waver in the face of tyranny are forgotten. But it still breaks your heart. And it brought me to this place today as I had re-examined Bonhoeffer and I had taken a look at this passage and. I just thought, how timely for us because we're all in a predicament. We're all in a predicament, but today that changes. This ministered to me and set me free and I pray it does for you too. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. First Kings 18. This is a story about Elijah who is an intense prophet. Elisha was the mother man of Israel. He he would follow Elijah. He was really sweet. Elijah was intense. The prophet's life is lonely. And and he, he stood alone. And the nation of Israel at the reading of 1 Kings 18 is very similar to the United States of America in 2021. A lot of people know God. They just don't worship him. They speak with their lips, but their hearts are far from They declare that they are Christians, but they serve ball. And the ones that call for the question are the ones that are ostracized and alienated. And the part that jumps out at me the most is when the question is asked, the people are silent. They're just spineless, they're indecisive. It's the greatest travesty in America today is the indecisiveness of the church. Verse 20 I'll read out loud if you follow along silently. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, "I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. therefore, let them give us two bowls, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. Put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, "Choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bowl which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, "O Baal, hear us." But there was no voice, no one answered. And then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and cried aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating or he is busy, inferences he's on the toilet. <laughs> or he is on a journey or pa- perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as there is their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Elijah took the 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold the two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order. He cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water, pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time so that the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again." Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the Brook Kishon and had a picnic with them there. No, I'm sorry, no, he, He executed them there. A lot of you guys struggle with that. I I love the fact that the Bible doesn't hold back with what happens in the affairs of men. How long will you falter between two opinions? And they answered him not a word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is living and breathing and sharpening two-edged sword cause us to come alive today. We can no longer be paralyzed, anesthetized, to indecisiveness. Today is a day of decision. Today we awaken. Either you are God or you are not. This day we are to choose. The nation desperately needs it, but more importantly, our families need it. Our city, our county, our state, our nation, the world. So, Lord, please. Why is it that we sit between these two opinions and speak not a word? Why are we silent when we know it is wrong? God, help us, we pray. Awaken us. We commit all this to you, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat. Relax. Not too much. When Charles Spurgeon looked at First Kings 18, and he came to the passage in verse 21, when Elijah came to all the people and said, "How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him." But the people answered him not a word. Spurgeon brilliantly coined this, and he stated, "How many more sermons do you want? How many more Sundays must roll away wasted?" How many warnings, how many sicknesses, how many toilings of the bell to warn you that you must die? How many graves must be dug for your family before you'll be impressed? How many plagues and pestilence must ravage this city before you will turn to God in truth? How long will you waver between two opinions? There was no objection. There was no repentance. They lacked the courage either to defend their position or to change it. They were just silent. Spurgeon says they were willing to live unexamined lives of low conviction. He says, Elijah could so accurately see their hearts because he could see their actions. I know you are not decided in opinion because you are not decided in practice. If God be God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. You are not decided in your practice. Spurgeon has a way with words. A way with handling these things when I kind of meditated on the passage, I'd heard it so eloquently taught by Dr. Lawrence White that it was hard to get his sermon out of my head. But the thing that captured me, that kind of moved me to where I believe God wanted me to be was the response of the people. They answered him, not a word. Look, either God's God Or he isn't. And if he's God, why in the world are we silent when the parts of little babies are being auctioned and sold in our state? When they're being harvested and their parts are flushed into the sewer systems of our nation, why are we silent? with a vaccine that uses those baby parts to accomplish whatever this shot is. And we know it's wrong in every capacity. We, we look at a virus that, our, our, our children have no danger of this virus. They're gonna get sick, they're gonna get cold. But we're gonna inject them with something that now we're watching in Taiwan, there's more deaths from the shot than there is from the virus. Almost 17,000 healthy Americans are dead today. You take all vaccine deaths combined since 2011, multiply it by more than 10, and you still don't equal the number of deaths created by this. For a virus that has a 99.7% survival rate, we're allowing our firefighters to be fired when less than a year ago they were heroes and were We're silent. Our teachers are being fired and we're silent. Our pilots are being fired and we're silent. Our children are being injected and we're silent. Our nurses, our doctors, they're being fired and we're silent. We waver, we don't even have an opinion, we just don't, don't wanna rock the boat. And then we, we, we capitulate, we, there's nobody who thinks it efficacious, we take it because we, we wanna work. We wanna visit our grandkids. And the tragedy is, they're playing us and they know it and we're silent. And silence is consent. And Elijah wouldn't let God's people get away with that. When they didn't answer him a word, he wouldn't put up with it. In the early, I would say the mid-1930s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian. He came to the United States. He was a brilliant theologian, by the way. He'd spent some time in Spain, but he, he came to the United States of America, he was given a teaching fellowship and an opportunity to remain in America as Nazism was on the rise and Hitler had spent time in prison. He had written Mein Kampf and he started to gather the brown shirts and, and he was starting to get this thuggery going of fascism, which just is, just fascism means bully. And as he's taking a nation that was once responsible for the, for the great reformation, the the Protestant Reformation, great theologians came out of Germany. They were responsible for, for the, the gospel moving throughout the known world. I mean, th- this was a remarkable place, Germany. still is today, but back then, how is it that they took a place that was so well-educated, so equipped, and turn it into a killing machine that would, uh, that would, would, would eviscerate and, and gas and burn six and a half million Jews and be responsible for, what, 70 million deaths? How do you do that? How do you turn a nation like that into a killing machine? How do you do that? And and Bonhoeffer was here in the States seeking the Lord, and he he comes to this fervent relationship with the Lord in a black church in America, writes his book, they offer him a teaching position, said, look, you don't have to go back to that nightmare. He says, I must. That has to stop. Everyone had given up. He went back. That's why I want to, we talk about our firefighters when everyone's exiting a building, they're going in. And in this, this nightmare, the, the bravest people on, in this country are the first responders that we once called heroes and now they're being fired and they're not quitting. They're, they're unifying together and they're standing in solidarity and opposition to what they know is a lie. And we must stand with them. We must stand with them. There's no choice. You're gonna choose this day whom you're, you're with. There's no middle ground. There's no fence here. If he's God, then his word matters. And truth is important. Bonhoeffer understood this. I don't know if you know this, but in April 9th, in, in, 1945, with seven other conspirators, he would be hung. He would be hung at the Flossenbürg concentration camp and 21 days later, Hitler would be dead. Hitler, as the Third Reich was imploding, Hitler made sure that one of his last edicts and directives make sure that Bonhoeffer's hung, kill him. 21 days later, he would shoot Braun and then kill himself in a bunker. This man wanted that man dead because he had the audacity to stand in opposition to me and he's watching as evil is, as his, his, his empire is crumbling and he holds that man responsible. Make sure he dies. How dare he tell me God is greater than me? It's the pride of evil. Hitler commanded the Third Reich And this pudgy little German theologian stood in opposition to the Fuhrer. His writings and his name continue and he's still revered and appreciated. He's inspirational. You see, a a decade earlier before his assassination, or excuse me, before he was hung, Hitler was on the rise, his stranglehold on the church in Germany was almost complete and no one seemed willing to act The Deutsche Christian, German Christian movement had accepted Nazi ideology. The global ecumenical movement was passive and indecisive towards Hitler's agenda. Bonhoeffer and his friends would soon form the Confessing Church and publish the Barman Declaration, which rejected the compromise with Nazism much of the German church was making. We're watching the church in America yield to tyranny. They're embracing socialism and communism. They're embracing the, 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 the surrender of our freedoms. They're, they're, they're attempting to justify enslavement to a tyrannical government by using scripture to say it's neighborly to mask and vax, mask and vax. Bonhoeffer was pleading for, device, for de- decisive action and on April 7, 1934, he wrote a letter to Henry Louis Anriad, the Swiss theologian who headed the Ecumenical World Alliance. He wrote, a decision must be made at some point and it's no good waiting indefinitely for a sign from heaven that will solve the difficulty without further trouble. Even the ecumenical movement has to wake, uh, make up its mind and is therefore subject to error like everything human. Just quit the, the paralysis of analysis, do something. Do something. All of you are saying conspiracy theory. All of you are saying a bunch of stuff. Let me ask you this. A year ago, if I told you that our military would be required to be vaccinated or they would be discharged and that all of our federal employees would be fired and your schools would require your children to be injected with an mRNA experimental shot and, and, or, or you would lose your job, You would have looked at me like I was smoking something. But we've been saying it for over a year, if not longer. And now you're going, well, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about the people watching the video. (laughs) It's not all that strange anymore. And the suspension of our first amendment, fourth amendment, 15th, 14th, I mean, we can go down the list. Our Seventh Amendment. Anything over $20, we're not even allowed. There's no liability for these vaccine companies. No liability. Big Pharma, no liability. They have killed almost 17,000 Americans. They've experimented on us. And we have no recourse. That's a violation of our Constitution. And who's saying anything? Nobody. When I say nobody, that's not completely true. There are a few, just like there's an Elijah. Bonhoeffer said, to procrastinate simply because you're afraid of erring when others, I mean our brethren in Germany, must make infinitely more difficult decisions every day, seems to me almost to run counter to love. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. And what he's saying is, you you have the luxury Whatever you're doing, maybe your job doesn't require that you have to make a decision or make a stand, but our brothers and sisters in solidarity who are losing their jobs need your voice. Now, Hitler was decisive. He was very decisive. The Ecumenical World Alliance was indecisive. They kept hoping things would work themselves out. There won't be a booster. We'll get to go back to normal. No, you won't. The last variant of COVID is totalitarianism. There's a lot of slots on that card. They're going to keep hitting you. (laughs) (laughs) They kept waiting for the perfect moment, the perfect choice. Neither came during World War II. Listen, during World War II, only 10% of the population were members of the Nazi party. Most people just went along. Most just follow the line of least resistance, more committed to their own comfort and ease, to the real purpose at hand. This is getting serious. Pastor Marty went to be with the Lord, 92 years young. He survived COVID you scared to death because we were under the, you know, watch. And they were waiting for somebody to die. Pastor Marty was worried. I go, Marty, it doesn't matter. We're free. He survived it. Tough. He's like a he had the constitution of a government mule, which is tough. And then he'd have to take a test to go visit Gwen. She's in hospice. And they required a flu shot. He got the flu shot on Friday, had problems breathing that day didn't feel well Saturday, came to church Sunday, Sunday night coughing up blood, Monday midnight, he was dead, cardiac arrest, interesting shot, not sure what they gave him, all I can tell you is there is no shot this government has that I ever want again, I don't trust them. Now, not everyone thought like Bonhoeffer. Martin Niemoller was actually a submarine captain, and he he fought in the First World War. He actually was an admirer of Adolf Hitler, but he came around and started to stand with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Protestant pastor in Germany who initially supported Hitler, but he later became an outspoken critic of the Nazis and was arrested in 1937. He spent most of the war in German concentration camps. And here is his statement of how the Nazis took over Germany. 10%. This is how they took over Germany. First, they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jew and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. First, they came for the firefighters. Then they came for the teachers. Are you getting it yet? Christians, religious exemptions, they've got an end game. They're decisive. They're committed. Niemoler in his letter to the Ecumenical World Alliance, excuse me, Bonhoeffer, was trying to shake them out of their passive indecision before it was too late. He was not successful in doing that, and of course, as we've all seen, as I've read in 1 Kings 18, Elijah's trying to shake the Israelites out of their complacency. How long will you falter between two opinions? No one person stepped forward, not one, not one person stepped forward. No one said, you know, today the faltering stops. I'm with you, Elijah. I'm standing with you. Nobody. They were complete mode of indecision Two of my heroes who are evangelists, and and I I went to their church and I've had conversations and I I can't understand why they can't make a decision on this. I went to a Bible study on a cul-de-sac in an indescript neighborhood in a three bedroom, two bath, uh, ranch style house, unassuming. I went there with Charlie, we were waiting outside. We were invited to go to Bible study. You know, it's kind of weird and we're wondering what's going on. And I'm thinking, you know, Charlie, are we at the right place? And are there going to be human sacrifices in here? Do we know who's doing this? And we, we walk into the home, and it's a beautiful home, and there's nice people inside. And, and the people who are hosting it are, are affluent, and typically affluent people um, are surrounded by what I call Klingons that want something from them. And in your world, where your world becomes expansive, if you have a private area, you want to be surrounded by people who don't need anything from you. And, and I was thinking, you know, you do a Bible study, people are going to pretend to be Christians so they can come in and be a part of your Bible study to get some bank from you. And we went in, we sat down, and I noticed that nobody in the room was like that. Um, and it was, it, was, it was the home of Esther Snyder who had gone to be with the Lord, uh, but her granddaughter, Lindsay, and her husband, Sean, hosted the Bible study. They own In-N-Out Burger. And Sean taught the Bible study, and, it was really, and they were the sweetest people. We had a neat conversation And they were moved and they were prepared to make a stand. And I have to tell you, In-N-Out Burger has more of a backbone than most of the churches in this state. I don't think the church gets it, but evil slips up on you. It's like Indian underwear creeps up on you. (laughs) It doesn't jump in your face with a pitchfork and a red tail. It comes in a disguise. It, It comes disguised. The words on the surface sound pretty reasonable. It's the trends that you have to watch. Okay? It's the trends that you have to watch. The problem is not just what has happened and is happening. The problem is also where is this going? What's the end game of this? I've already, I told you. Told you from day one, the end game is totalitarianism. The end game is a dismantling of this republic. That's the end game. The end game is enslavement. The end game is, a, is the same thing in 6,000 years of recorded history. It's not hard to figure out. It's the same roadmap. Oligarchies, that is the, this, is, this is the exception. You think America is this way because of something other than God, you were you are mistaken. Freedom, mankind doesn't give freedom. They, do, they, they want you to work for them. You are their peons, they're the tyrants. They wanna take away any vestige of freedom. And, and I don't, left or right, you're, if you're independent, Democrat, Republican, listen, all of us right now are losing it. Bobby Kennedy and I were on a radio program, I, I was a guest host on KKLA, Thursday and Friday, I'm doing it again Monday. A guy calls in, I said, he's a lifelong Democrat, I'm a lifelong Republican, we're both in agreement on the fact that we don't want our liberty taken. And the guy goes, he's an anti-vax, wacko. That's all the left has is ad hominem attacks. I go, well, first of all, he's not anti-vax. Yes, he is. I go, no, he's not. You need to check your facts. And secondly, a wacko. Harvard Law Degree, Georgetown, Virginia Law Degree. I mean, Harvard Graduate, Virginia Law Degree. He's won massive cases against big pharma. You're the wacko, dude. I didn't say that because I don't participate in ad hominem attacks, but I felt it. I wanted to say it. And yet, I'm, I'm looking at this man contending. He's, he's lost everything for the sake of standing for truth. The most iconic name in America, the Kennedy. His father was assassinated running for president. His uncle was assassinated. And now his character's assassinated. And he's thinking, if they, they stood for that, I'm willing to stand for this. He's, he's relentless and tireless. And, and they, they don't even know what they speak. They've just attacked everything and they've canceled him. Dr. Judy, same way, everybody... You dare to stand against an opposing narrative and speak the truth and talk about all of these cases and, and no liability and, and where this is going. And he's, he's an attorney that contends and lays these out. And the people that would call in and be upset about it had no facts. They just didn't like it. Look, timeout. Just like with abortion, all of us in our lifetime have been subject and have made a decision contrary to what God likes. We were raised that way. I I was pro-choice. I I dealt with that. When I came to Christ, I had to make a decision. I remember walking out of my parents' house when my dad said, your girlfriend has to get an abortion or you'll never step foot in this house again. That's the day I grew up. That's the day I walked out and I, I didn't waver. I wasn't indecisive. It wasn't a blob of tissue. It's a human being. I don't, you take away my family home. Take away my relationship with you. I will not participate in the murder of another human being, willingly or unwillingly, ever. I'm not going to do it. Now, if that costs you something, remember this. You're going to breathe your last on this earth and stand before God and give an accounting of your life. Children are made they 're they're, they're a blessing from the Lord, as we saw in the dedication they 're a gift from God they 're fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in their mother 's womb. Does that mean that, that that all of us in this room have been free from the scourge of participating in so heinous an action as abortion? All of us have blood on our hands okay, but don 't double down and defend your lousy decision by shelving the truth and, and fighting. By emotion. Recognize you're wrong and agree with God. That's repentance. And just move on. And you're not going to be popular, but you're going to be right with the Lord. And kids will live. Same thing with the the shot. You've been fervent because of your political position, you liked it, and it, ma- it made sense because it was targeting people that you didn't like and you were stoked on it. But now suddenly you're going, this is out of hand. And some of you are struggling over it. and Some of you were. You know, you're just thinking it was a little too much, and now you're watching and going, I'm not so sure. Don't double down. Do your homework, be decisive. Make a decision. You know, here's how it worked, folks. Let's just go back through history. First, Hitler only deprived Jews of their citizenship. No one's killed. In many ways, their lives could continue as is, but a step is taken in a direction. So, medical apartheid. Oh, you're, you're gonna be fine, you just can't go into these stores without This badge that's yellow with uh, You didn't get that, but I thought I threw them (laughs) in. Oh, you have a conscience? You have conviction? Oh, you're out of the military. Oh, you actually want to look at the data of medical issues and you really are worried about this being passed on to your family. Okay. Yeah, you're out. A step is taken in that direction. And then in 1935, by 1938, Jewish businesses are shut down and all Jews must carry an identification card. By 1940, they're moved into ghettos and forced into concentration camps. The process is usually done in stages so that people slowly accept the change. You've heard how to boil a frog without him reacting. You put him in water and slowly turn up the heat until it boils him. That's what Hitler did to the Jews. Edmund Burke was credited with saying, the only thing necessary for triumph... For, for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing You must be decisive jesus loves decisiveness that's why he picked these guys matthew four eighteen. jesus was walking on the sea of galilee saw two fishermen casting nets into the sea simon peter his brother andrew then jesus said to them follow me i will make you fishers of men that invitation called for a decision You know what? The Bible points it out, and I love their response. It says, they immediately left their nets and followed him. Amazing decision. They walked away from everything to follow Jesus. It was all based on one thing. His word to them contained a command and a promise. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. You can't get much more decisive than that. Notice the word immediately, and that's the one I emphasized. When God speaks to you, obey immediately, otherwise you will talk yourself out of it. As my friend who is highly educated, with a master's degree in theology, was able to convince himself otherwise. There are other occasions when Jesus gave the invitation. People halted, hesitated, lost the opportunity. Can't put God on hold. When he calls you, you answer. In Luke 9, there was a scribe who thought about following Jesus, but when he counted the cost, he turned back. Another man's response was, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Another one said, Lord, I will follow you, but... First, let me go and bid farewell to those in my house and the indecisive nature of his answer, Lord, I will follow you, but, and the word but is a disassociative conjunctive. It just means, you know, everything I just said, I don't mean, this is what I mean. I I don't want to follow you. I want to go tend to the things that I love, which is baubles and trinkets. Jesus doesn't have time for that. He said in Luke 9, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Remember Lot's wife, double-minded, no looking back, no turning back, full speed ahead. This is, uh, Lot's wife, she turned back, she goes, oh, the Nordstrom's is burning. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote this down after my conversation with my friend that broke my heart. I often see people under delusion that a good excuse was the same as obedience. Those people excuse themselves from the greatest opportunity they could ever have in life. Be careful that you produce obedience and not just good excuses. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, responded the same way that Peter and Andrew responded to their call. They too were busy men. And they were mending their nets, but immediately they left the boat and their father and followed the Lord people wallow in decision making process for various reasons perhaps it's because they genuinely don't have enough information that's not true for all of us you may not have it all but you have enough there's always going to be an element a risk of decision simply because we don't have infinite knowledge we don't know the future it doesn't mean that you're to be uh, experience paralysis by analysis make up your mind Do something. And this is is the truth. This is the truth. Sometimes people simply want to play both sides of the fence. They want to serve the Lord and they want the benefits of his blessing and they want to be able to call on him in times of trouble and receive his help. On the other hand, they don't quite want to give up some of the things of the world either. Minded of the squirrel in the middle of the street that can't make up his mind which way to go to keep from getting run over. The hesitancy guarantees he's not going to make it His splattered body on the pavement is a memorial to the peril of his indecision. (laughs) You're standing on the railroad tracks, a train's coming. Should I stay on or get off? No decision is a decision for death. Indecision is not what God's called us to. Decisiveness is. You wonder that. The nation, just like they were in 1 Kings 18 with Joshua in chapter 24, Joshua speaks to the people. He says, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river in Egypt, and now it's time to serve the Lord. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now you need to make a decision. Either he's God or he isn't. The two great truths of the universe, there's a God and you are not him. And these are the laws of nature and nature's God. And either we've been created in his image and we have inalienable rights. Or we don't. Either God has instilled them in us, imprinted them in us, and we are to protect them For all mankind, for all generations, and we're to live to set the captives free? Or man is the one who decides what's right and wrong? God with his absolute, holding the universe in the span of his hand. The one who establishes all truth and is all truth. That we are governed by the laws of nature and nature's God. Or we are not. And man calls the shots. There is no God and they're in charge. And you and I serve them yeah no but in serving the lord unlike man it comes at a price you must humble yourself because when he calls you into his service into righteousness to set captives free he now makes you the greatest in his kingdom which is a servant and you love people even your enemies You do good to those who spitefully use you. James wrote in chapter one, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to you. But let him ask in faith with no doubting For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded, indecisive, unstable in all of his ways. Michelle and I put our lives on the line in some respects by helping people in areas that are troublesome in some capacity and hurting people hurt people. And you look for the character of the individual. It was fascinating when I heard Joseph Bondarenko share that the people that reported them to the KGB were Christians. Not just that, but the best preachers in Christendom that would make the circuit in these underground churches. And they would take copious notes of who was there and report to the KGB. And they would just continue to go through the Soviet empire and throw their brothers and sisters under the bus for a bowl of red red bean soup, thinking that they were accomplishing something. But they are in a lot of trouble. That nation, like every other oligarchy, has fallen. The church is in a difficult place. I'll close with this last scripture and one illustration and we'll be concluding. This is out of Revelation chapter three. The angel of the Lord said to the church of Laodicea, which I believe is the church today. These these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The Lord is saying to the church at Laodicea, you are, you're in need of nothing because you've come to think that church is about influence, money, and power. And we're so enamored with our buildings and our budgets and our baptisms, and we've turned all of Christendom into a money-making venture. And if that's threatened, we'll do whatever we have to capitulate and compromise to the tyrant in order to keep the cash flow going. Keep your money. We stand for liberty. If this is insulting to anybody, I have never asked any of you for a dime, I never will. We've never passed an offering bag. If anyone thinks that I, we're doing what we're doing for money, you're sorely mistaken. Everything we get, we give. We're a conduit, not a reservoir. People go, How much have you saved? Nothing. We give it all away. Ask any of the businesses, anyone that we've given, the, the attorneys that we've supported for the churches that are under fire. That's what we do. we're so stuck in first world problems. The church is wondering, should we use the proper pronouns? People are starving in in parts of the world, they they, they could care less about pronouns. What, our children have been so indoctrinated because we have been running after the the gift instead of the giver, that we're, we're, we're so blown away by our treasures that we, we have relegated our children to be indoctrinated and we no longer take God at his word that we are stewards of their lives, that we're to raise them in the love and the admonition of the Lord. We have, we have subjected them to a secular environment that has removed God and has indoctrinated them and separated them from us. And that they come home at Thanksgiving when you have paid with the money you've earned in capitalism to send them to a school. and They come back and they say, is, is that a cruel free turkey? Is this? Cruelty free. And this isn't Thanksgiving. This is Indigenous People Day. And I have new pronouns. Well, good. Now you have a bill for school because I'm done paying for it. But then you take your money and you put it on the buildings of those schools. Because ego, you've arrived, you put it on that building and then they just use it to indoctrinate more. It's time to just stop. Quit being lukewarm. Today's the day that we say, you know what Lord? This nation is under fire. Liberty is under attack. This republic is holding on by a thread. And only a moral people can govern a republic. And God, you say in Jeremiah 18, if, if I intend evil for a nation and they repent, I'll relent from the evil I intended to do. Lord, I don't know what eschatology everyone believes or what they think the end times or they're looking at the geopolitical landscape and they think it's a juggernaut that can't be stopped. Give it a rest. No one ever appointed you judge, jury, and advocate of the end times. We're pre-trib, pre-millennial at Calvary Chapel, but I got news for you. I don't have a clue. I got work to do. So just roll your sleeves up and get back to work because we got generations that need us to give them a future. Amen. And then, Amen. And then, Amen. And then. All right, God bless you guys. All right, I'll have the worship team come up because you've earned it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) We'll have the worship team come up and I'm gonna gonna share this while they're coming up. We're wavering. And the beautiful thing about the passage of scripture, how long will you falter between two opinions if the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. Everyone who made a decisive decision, their names are written in the annals of history, and everyone who didn't, you don't remember them. They're on the ash heap of forget. I always think of David. I told you last week, when he runs out on the battlefield in Valley of Elah, as a ruddy young boy takes on a nine-foot, 10-inch giant, invokes the three names of God, Lord of hosts, living God, Jehovah, meaning I'll be for you whatever you need when you need it. He doesn't call Goliath a champion. He doesn't call him a giant. He calls him a reproach and a defiler of the armies of Israel. And when Goliath mocks him, David looks at him and he says, you come at me with weapons that are far superior than my own earthly wise, but I got a secret for you, Goliath. You think this battle is against you and me, But it's not. This battle's against you and God. And you've opened up a can of Jesus you're not going to get the lid on. (laughs) When the Bible says God holds the heavens in the span of his hand, and I love this illustration, you come down to that Milky Way galaxy and there you find our solar system. And then you come down there to that little blue marble earth. And then you go down there to the Middle East. And you go over there to... Judah. Judah go down there, there's the Valley of Elah, There's there's Goliath really Goli, Goliath's really big and he's screaming, screaming. he's going cut your head. head off, he'll feed you birds in the air, <laughs> <laughs> the folks in the swamp live under the illusion that they're in control you are children of the living God and they are in defiance to freedom stand and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords it's time for America to be set free God bless you guys